let's pick up our reading in, uh, let's, let's pick it up in verse 15. We won't always go this far back, but that's kind of the beginning of the thought, and then we'll work our way through. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father, And mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If I could sort of pull back the curtain a little bit on my life as a pastor, um, I was not, I did not train when my training years to be a pastor. I thought I was going to be going into more of a educational academic type of field. So the courses that I always took were a little more academic in nature, learning language, learning theology, all all sorts of things that definitely relate to what it's like to being a pastor, but never exactly what life is like as a pastor. And so as a consequence, for example, I never took a class on counseling. I became a pastor, much to my surprise, and somebody, a couple, a young couple came to me and asked me to do some pre-marriage counseling, and I said to myself, I said to them, sure, I'll do some pre-marriage counseling, and said to myself, I'm going to have to invent some pre-marriage counseling, (laughs) and so taking them through the pre-marriage counseling was a bit of a discovery for them as much as it was for me, and I was only ever one lesson in front of them. Well, God be praised, they're still married, okay? So uh, God did something right in bringing those two together. But through the years, I've developed uh, a course of pre-marriage counseling based on the verses that we just read. And I take several sessions, and we work through different phases of what we just read. And I try to focus on obvious observations, because it's frequently that the most obvious things that 
Paul is saying, are the things that are lost first on us. And they're also the things that we can recover more easily when we face trouble in our marriage. If it's an obvious thing from the text, like husbands love your wives, um, then that's very easily recoverable. And so one thing that I've learned as I've done pre-marriage counseling several times now, when I take a couple through pre-marriage counseling, my own marriage flourishes. And I think it's because I get reminded in God's providence of the definition of marriage, of the role of the wife, of the role of the husband, of the attitudes and attitudes, uh, the attitudes and reflections and actions that have to be portrayed in a marriage. And so it was, we had been working through the book of Ephesians, and we landed on this passage. And I began wondering how I should teach it. The method that I take in the counseling session sounds, I think, a lot different than the way I usually preach. So what I'd like to do over the next several weeks is depart a little bit from how I normally preach, where we kind of work through verses in order, and we pull apart the meaning and then put it back together. And I'd rather instead have the next several weeks sound a little bit more like what you would get in the counseling session, a pre-marriage counseling session, if you weren't already married and if you wanted me to do your pre-marriage counseling. And the hope is that just as I get blessed when I work through this material uh, with a couple, that maybe the Lord would have for you a blessing uh, in much the same way. Does that make sense, everybody? So, like I said, we're going to go through this a little bit differently than we would normally do it, but it's all in an effort to help us recover what it means to be married. Now, I don't need to parade in front of you all the many attacks that have been leveled against Christian marriage. In fact, the very first attack was an attack through marriage. It was the serpent who came to Eve, and he tried to get her to question what God had spoken to her husband, and it was through that relationship that sin was, entered, was introduced to the world. Marriage has always been under attack, and there's reasons for that, and we're going to work toward them. I don't want, as we spoke of in previous sessions, to turn these into a Christian gripe session about all the attacks that the world levels against marriage. It always has been, and it always will be. Like I said, I don't have to enumerate them for you. I think the best thing for us to do is to get into the text and start making those obvious observations that lead to profound conclusions, okay? So, let me bring you into lesson number one. And I have a question for you. If you already know the answer, you're not allowed to say it, but I will say I've never had an unmarried couple get the answer right, okay? I've never had an unmarried couple get the answer right. Here's the question. When does a person get married? When do they go from not married to married? At what point? At what moment do they go from not married to married? Somebody please tell me. 
There is a moment, you're two, now you're one. When is it? That's right. Daniel, you went through my pre-marriage counseling. And just so you know, Daniel did not get it right when he went through it with me. (laughs) It's when God says you are. Now, there's a lot of bad answers to that question. There's when we sign the marriage certificate. No, mm -mm. you can sign the marriage certificate long before or long after. Or when we decided ourselves. No, mm -mm. this is not This is not the way it is, or you'd have 14-year-old kids getting married, declaring themselves married because they love her with all his heart, and you wouldn't want kids being able to do that. Nor is it physical intimacy. Physical intimacy is the byproduct of a good marriage, hopefully, and just because it's entered into ahead of marriage doesn't make it marriage. So... In Christian marriage, now we're not talking about, I want to make sure we're understanding that we're limiting ourselves to the subject of Christian marriage. Okay. There are many sorts of other marriages that are out there that are just outside the scope of our consideration. Okay, so we're talking about when Christians come together, okay? And we are married when God says so. Now let's work toward that conclusion. I had us begin in... Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. But I want us to go down and look at a verse that the Apostle Paul quotes. Look at verse 31 of Ephesians 5. Okay, look at Ephesians chapter 31, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore, by the way, Daniel, I have a PowerPoint for this. It is, I usually don't have a PowerPoint for Sunday school, but I do this time. Okay? And it is part one. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, part 1, and then for worship, it will be part 2, as I had a creative flourish when I was creating these titles. <laughs> okay, you got that up there? Okay, excellent. Okay, Paul says in verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. I want you to know that this is a quotation of the pinnacle of God's creative acts in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. This is the pinnacle of God's creative week. So let's go back to Genesis 1. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Okay, so turn back there with me if you will. Okay, Now, this one you should always be able to find because it's the very first page in your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Now, I just want us to observe some things about this passage very quickly, okay? Look at Genesis 1, and we see the creation of light in verse 1 and forward. Verses 6, I'm sorry, verse 3 is the creation of light. Verse 6, there's the creation of the expanse, verse 9, the creation of the waters, verse 14, lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day and night, verse 20, the creation of the, the animal life in the, 
in the, uh, in the swarms of the water. In verse 24, God creates the living creatures on the land, and he blesses them, and, and so forth. And then we come all the way to verse 26, and God says something a little different. Before, he was saying, let this be, and it was. And then God creates man. And when he does, before he does that, he deliberates. This shows that there's going to be something different about his creation of man. Then God said, Ah, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over everything that I just created. And then God gives this little couplet here in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now we get another advance. Male and female, he created them. There's a distinction here. God says he created man in his image. There's something about the creation of man that communicates to us the likeness of God. In the likeness of God, he created man. In other words, there's a very thought-provoking divine way in the process in which God created man. Then he says, and, and this is going to be very important for us moving forward, he says that both man and woman possess the image of God. Both man and woman possess the image of God. He created them both to possess that image. Now let's just Remember those basic points, and then I want you to turn to chapter 2, okay? Genesis 1 is more or less an overview of the week of creation. And then Genesis 2, God focuses on day 6 of creation. These are the generations of the heavens and earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. And he talks about how God had put, created a garden and put man in the garden. And he hones in on how he created the woman from the rib of the man. In other words, Genesis 1 is an overview of the creative week. And Genesis 2, though it contains other elements, focuses on day six of the creation week. Now, that's really important for us to note because God doesn't focus in on how he created the planets. God doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of how he created the, the earth with its core and the layers that extend out from it, or the cosmos and how we're circulating and rotating and flying through the air at the speed of light and all those other things. No, when he wants to hone in on something, he hones in on the creation of marriage. Of marriage. Okay? Let's look at some themes that come out in chapter 1 that we need to note, as I think this will be important. There's an important theme of the word good. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. He says, and God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, and God saw that it was good. 
verse 12. Let's see here. Verse 12. The plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which their seed according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Let's go to verse 18. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21. And God saw that it was good. <laughs> Verse 25. And it was so. I'm sorry. Uh, let's see here. Verse 25. Oh, I was looking at verse 24. And God saw that it was good. Let's go to verse 31 of chapter 1. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now let's go to chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Verse 12, and the gold of that land is good. So far in God's creative week, only everything has been good. Okay, what's another one of these themes? Well, another one is blessing. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22. And God blessed them. He's speaking to the animals. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Go to chapter 1, verse 28. He says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from his work and all that he had done in creation. There's a, another point that comes out that I got a little too far ahead of myself the concept of image, which we covered in 126 and 27. God made something unique about man, not only in the product, but in the process. And so both male and female bear God's image. Now, here's why I led us through all of that. Before we go to that next slide, what was the word that stood out to you as the most frequent? What's the word? Good. It was good. And God saw to it that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God said that it was very good. Sin hasn't entered the world yet. Everything is perfect and made exactly as it should be. It's all good. Except for one thing. And here's where we have a crisis. There's a crisis that if you're reading this for the very first time, you may have, you would, it would stick out to you very much. But in the fact that we've read this so many times, we miss it. Everything is good, 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 good. Now go to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, and it's like the record screeching across the needle, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. And so, 
God is resolved to do something about this. Now, before we move forward, let's remember, is the not good the result of sin? Is the not good a result of some failing in God? No. But the not good was there because of what? Because of whom? Who created it not good? Who created it not good? God did. God created this, and his own assessment of his own creation is that it's not good. Well, let's see what he's resolved to do now. He's done something that he deems not good. And he says, I know what I will do. I will make a helper fit for him. So don't read the next verse. What's your expectation of what's going to happen next? I will make a helper fit for him. What do you think God's going to do next? He's resolved. What do you think he'll do? Yeah, he'll cut right to it and make a helper. Don't you think that's what's next? Let's look and see what's next. Now, out of the ground, God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. What? That's not making him a helper. So here's what God says. He creates this thing. He creates this man, and he says, by my own creation, by my own assessment of my own creation, although everything else was good, this is not good. I know what I'll do. I will make a helper for him. But before I do that, I'm going to have every animal come to Adam so that he can name them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to birds and the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. Now, whose assessment was that? Whose assessment was that? There's, there's not a helper. It was God's, but it was also Adam's, wasn't it? You can almost see Adam, the creatures with large creatures with fangs and manes and giant paws comes to him and he says, ah, male lion and female lion. Don't they look different? Well, of course they do. And off they go. In flutters in a bright red cardinal and a kind of red cardinal. And he says, ah, male cardinal, female cardinal. And off they go. Adam began to notice something. That... For every other animal, there was a female and male correspondent. Except for who? Except for him. Why did God do that? That's an honest question. I want you guys to answer me that. Why did God do that? Why did God say, this is not good that man should be alone. Oh, I am resolved to make a helper for him. But first... I'm going to parade every other creative living being in front of him so that he draws the conclusion that 
He doesn't have a correspondent. Why did God do that? Yeah, that's right. God wanted Adam to draw the conclusion himself that he was a part without a couple. That apart from sin, where only righteousness reigned, he was still in need. So God raises man's awareness just so he can meet the need. God brings Adam to his own sense of incompleteness just so he can make a person that corresponds to him. Now, I'd like us to draw some observations from what we've just learned. Okay, number one, marriage is the pinnacle of God's creation. Marriage is the pinnacle, the cherry on top. Marriage is God's. It's his intellectual property. Marriage was the thing that God was working to all along. It's the climax. It's the crescendo of this creative feast. Marriage must therefore mean a lot to God, don't you think? Number two, in marriage, God has flawlessly designed differences and dependence into the people who make it up. Okay, let me read that again and read that carefully. In marriage, God has flawlessly designed differences and dependence into the people who make it up. Let's take the example of a watch, like one of the old-timey watches, not one of these fancy electronic watches. It's got a cog that moves. There's a watchmaker on YouTube, and I like to watch him fix, fix watches. It's probably boring, but I don't care. I love it. <laughs> What good is a cog without the corresponding part that drives it? In and of itself, does the cog do anything? Well, no. There's a... Now, sometimes that cog is broken, and he has to go find a replacement cog. But the cog, though perfect is different from the one that drives it, and it's incomplete by design. Even when perfect, it's incomplete. And it's in the marriage, not of the same thing with it, because what would two exactly similar cogs do? Would they do anything? No! They would just sit there doing nothing. It needs the difference 
of interdependence to make it go. Here, in fact, is why same-sex marriage can never be marriage. Because God designed it to be difference. Different people coming together to make a cohesive whole. That's how God designed it. Sameness can't drive it forward. God designed it this way. We need to remember this. Our wives aren't helps to move us forward in life. Or our husbands aren't an aid to help us in our fallenness. God designed men to need women, and God designed women to need men. And it's when they come together in their mutual dependence and independently of each other, they're limited. But when they come together, it drives forward. Number three, when God joins these dependent and different people, they fit so tightly together that they lose their individual identities and become one. When God joins interdependent parts together, he joins them so tightly together that they become one. That's why it reads here, therefore a man shall leave his father and join his wife and they shall be one flesh. He's not talking about only about intimacy. He's talking about the very act of making you one. And we'll discover a little bit later why that's so important. So, it's not Elaine and it's not Dom. When God said that they were married, they became Elaine Dom or Dom Elaine or however you want to put it. They became the Ganinos or whatever other name they want to take. The same for Dirk and Christy. They're not Christy and or Dirk. It's Dirk Christy. <laughs> that actually works well because the K and the CH kind of line up. Dirk Christy. <laughs> They become one. One. That is so important. Jesus quotes this later. He says, what God has joined together, don't let man tear. Divorces, sometimes there are reasons for divorce. Sometimes it has to happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. But when it does, because God has brought those two together, you have to expect the edges are going to be incredibly frayed because God has joined them so tightly together that they can't be separated without incredible damage to both parties. Fourth, by uniting these dependent and different people together in marriage, the fullest expression of God's image is found. Now I'll take another couple. I'll pick on another couple. Nathan and Kelly. 
has God given Nathan all the image of God that he needs? Nathan, has God given you all the image of God that you need? No. Kelly, has God given you all the image of God that you need? But Nathan has the image of God, and Kelly has the image of God, and when God brings those two image bearers together in mutual interdependency, do you know what happens? Nathan Kelly, not Nathan and Kelly, but Nathan Kelly become the fullest expression of the image of God in them. And as they act out their marriage, they are displaying the nature and character of God. Let's just think about this for just one second. Imagine, I know Nathan and Kelly never even have a breath of disagreement between them, but let's pretend for a moment that they did. And it's a, I'm, I'm, I have, they know that I, I'm totally making this up on the spot, okay? They're, they, they have come into $1,000 and they're trying to, s- to decide what they want to do with $1,000. And Nathan has an idea and a Bible verse attached to it. Okay? And Kelly has an idea with a Bible verse attached to it. And Nathan says, honey, I, I think based on this Bible verse, I think we should do this with it. And Kelly says, well, honey, I think based on this verse, I think we should do this with it. But they're different ideas. Okay? Well, even just the way they talk that through and what they ultimately decide, that act displays God's image for anybody who's watching, including the heavenly beings that are always watching. Okay? This is so profound, isn't it? We are always on display, and the way that we're working together like this is a representation of God before all. Now, let's make some brief meditations, cleverly disguised as applications, okay? Marriage belongs to God, okay? Attacking marriage attacks the God who made it and owns it. Marriage belongs to God. When we see marriage being attacked in the world, just understand that that's an attack on God. And reckon it as so. And understand that if you're going to pursue Christian marriage, you are going to swim upstream all your days. Okay? Number two, marriage is an act of God. God brings people together. Therefore, we ought never, ever discuss the possibility of separation unless it's one of those extreme circumstances. We don't joke that way. We don't talk that way. We don't meditate along those lines. God has brought us together in indissoluble union. We don't keep what's mine and she keeps what's hers in separate accounts or places or whatever that might be because we're one. God did that, not us, God did. We don't joke, my next wife will be 
fill in the blank. My next husband will be tall, dark, and handsome. And I say, rats, I'll never be that. We don't joke that way. It should be alarming to our children when they hear of family or friends who divorced. And I guarantee when they hear that, they're, they will be, they'll be afraid. They'll say, that, that won't ever happen to you, mom and dad, will it? No. No, that's not open for discussion in our home. Based on the fact that God brought us together. Now again, in cases of gross immorality or neglect or abuse, clearly there are some exceptions, but those are extreme exceptions. And then last, marriage is one of God's chief concerns in this universe. Your marriage. How often we put other things over marriage that shouldn't be over marriage. We think about our job. We think about our career. Very often children get put in front of spouses. Hobbies, possessions, ease, time. If I could, if I could commend, it, this is borrowed advice. This is borrowed advice. How, how do parents communicate to young children that mom and dad's relationship is top on the shelf of priority? How do mom and dad communicate that to young children? Well, a couple ways. Number one, when mom and dad are talking, children can't easily and readily interrupt anytime they want. Now, that doesn't mean the Baker children never interrupt. <laughs> we'll be talking, and we just hold up our hand. We say, why don't you come back in about five minutes? I want to hear that, but come back in five minutes. And that's simply so we can try to communicate to them that mom and dad's relationship is central. Another way is that moms and dads should never undercut each other to their kids. Ever. Mom should never undercut dad. Dad should never undercut mom. Because what have you shown? You've, you've abandoned your spouse and partnered with your child. And the child now knows there's something between us that's not between them. This is superior in that case. Now, sometimes it's accidental, right? Like um, just the other day, one of my kids asked for ice cream. And I said, sure, you can have some ice cream. Danielle came back home. Danielle said, why is the ice cream scoop in the sink? And I said, well, I told the kids they could have some ice cream. And she said, oh. I said they weren't allowed to have ice cream. They had already had their ice cream. And I learned my lesson. So now when the children ask for ice cream, I say, have you talked to your mother? <laughs> well, even with young children, even just in our own attitudes, if you have a career opportunity, the first question should always be, what is that do to, what's that going to do to my marriage? What's that going to do to my relationship with my kids? What's that going to do with my relationship with church? And then on down the line, 
what does that do with my career? <laughs> That's distant. Okay. Do you see now how important marriage is to God? And why I like to start pre-marriage with this one? So, Benjamin knows the answer to the question. Now, don't tell Aaron. We'll see if she gets it right. Um, if you guys ever come to me for that sort of thing. Okay? All right. Well, let's pray, and we will dismiss for worship. Father, thank you so much for unfolding for us what marriage is and how important it is to you. And I pray that we would have, um, we would keep our marriage as central as it needs to be, just beneath our relationship with you. And I pray that you would foster and help and bring along strong marriages for your glory as you have intended uh, in your plan. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.